Hey everyone, welcome back to the Reluctance on Podcast with Chris. Tuning in here from uh, Bozeman, Montana. Uh, took the show on the road. Um, I've mentioned before that I would be doing a road trip and trying to upload pretty frequently. Um, so I'm just recording some stuff along the way and probably be uploading it later. So I'll try not to speak too much on what's going on in today's day because it might not be today's day when you listen to it. So anyways, I'm uh, sitting here in a hotel room um, in Bozeman, Montana, drinking wine out of a plastic cup. Uh, So obviously, as you know, I'm a high-quality psalm. But the wine's leftover wine that I had from last night. So just jumping right into the wine portion where I always review one wine, um, the wine that I had last night was Domaine de la Genesse uh, Cote Rhone Village, 2016. So Cote is a term that you may or may not have heard of before, but essentially a, a red blend coming from southern Rhone. Um, I'll touch a little on Rhone today, but uh, as far as this wine goes, um, 2016 is a really amazing vintage for the Rhone Valley, um, especially southern Rhone varietals. Um, and so this particular wine uh, showed really well, um, was relatively inexpensive. I've had their Chateauneuf de Pop before, which is a, essentially Grenache, heavy red blend that they do that sees a little higher quality standard, uh, but the Cote Rhone Village is just kind of like their entry tier red. Um, wine's really great. Uh, I got it on a wine list for about $38. Uh, I think you can order it off Kermit Lynch for 20 to 30 bucks a bottle, um, relatively affordable. Um, I don't think that there's much retail presence, but if you ever see the wine in a restaurant, I highly recommend grabbing a bottle. Either the Chateauneuf de Pop, which normally uh, claims a little higher price point, uh, I would say 150 plus on a list, or uh, the Cote de Rhone, which I guess could be anywhere um, under 80, let's say. Um, but either way, highly recommend this um, vineyard, this producer. So uh, the wine was really beautiful. It was deep purple in color, um, really kind of a dense, meaty, spicy uh, wine. Um, it had a little bit of cassis, which is odd because normally when you think cassis, you think maybe Cabernet. Um, but the cassis showed through a little bit more than most Cote de Rhone's that I've had before. It also had a little bit of like a dusty, earthy characteristic to it. Um, medium tannin, medium acid, pretty straightforward uh, red blend. Um, it was full-bodied, so if you're looking for something a little light, I would maybe steer clear of Rhone in general. But um, a great wine that's not, uh, super powered with tannin. So, so that was nice. The tannin was really beautiful, well integrated. So I mentioned it's a red blend. Um, it's 25% Grenache, 25% Syrah, 25% Mavedra, and 25% Carignan. So these are all pretty prominent grapes in the Rhone Valley, Southern Rhone especially. And, uh, the grapes are all fairly different. Um, so they're blending in all the grapes to just kind of, uh, add and accentuate different characteristics of the other grape and kind of shine through some characteristics that they like. Um, most of the time, if you have a red blend, that's what they're doing. They're kind of blending multiple things together to make a great wine, um, and not necessarily compensate for a lack of quality of another grape, but maybe try to bring the best of both worlds by, uh, combining multiple grapes. Um, a classic pairing for traditional Cote de Rhone is uh, lamb, or most Syrah-based, Grenache-based wines could, could go really well with lamb. 
Um, so Rhone is maybe something that not everybody's super familiar with, but Rhone is one of my favorite regions uh, as of late, I would say over the last year or so. I've been drinking a lot of wines from the Rhone and I've been really getting into it, um, trying to educate myself a little more as many French regions can be a little complex and a little difficult and not very straightforward when it comes to uh, somebody who was trained in American wine originally. Um, the wines are almost always named after the region. Um, and then within that region, there's oftentimes uh, different um, production restrictions and, and things like that. So Cote de Rhone um, comes from the uh, Rhone Valley. The Rhone Valley is named the Rhone Valley because of the Rhone River. So the Rhone River is something that starts off um, near uh, Geneva. Um, it's about 505 mile long river that runs all the way to the Mediterranean. Um, but the Rhone Valley is specifically the growing region that we're focusing on um, near Lyon. Um, so it's a little south of Dijon if you're looking at the map of France, but still uh, southern France in general. When you think of Rhone, I would say if you think Bordeaux, you think left bank, right bank. If you think of uh, you know other other regions, you think of all of the sub appellations. But for Rhone, it's kind of a little more straightforward. You think of Northern Rhone and Southern Rhone. Those are the two kind of ends of the spectrum of wines. Um, in Northern Rhone, there's a lot, not a lot, but there's, there's some 100% varietal representations. And, and there's also red wines that are being blended with, uh, sorry, red grapes that are being blended with white grapes that are being co-fermented together, which is kind of interesting. Um, we don't really see that a lot in New World where there's white wines being added to red wines even after the wines are fermented, but these grapes are actually being processed together, um, which brings some really, really great wines. Uh, there are some New World producers that do that. Um, I've mentioned before Skylark Winery, and I've spoke about their Pink Belly, their Pinot Blanc, but um, most of their wines they're doing some co-fermenting on, which is really great. Um, it, it brings a lot of complexity to the wine, a really unique characteristic. Um, so within the Northern and Southern Rhone, uh, I, as podcasts progress, I'll try to get a little bit more complex or dive into subregions. So today we're just going to kind of talk about Rhone as a, as a whole. Um, so if you have a Rhone producer, there's some really great producers, um, Family Perrin, which is responsible for Beaucastel, um, Guigal, St. Cosme, Chave, Jamais. Uh, Alamon, Vue Telegraph, uh, Mont-Olivet. There's a lot of really famous producers coming from the region, um, really established esteemed producers. And one of the reasons I really like Rhone is because uh, they're not ridiculously expensive as of yet. Um, not to say you won't pay a lot if you want to have a good quality wine, which you should expect, but to get Chauve, which is kind of considered one of the uh, cornerstones of um, Hermitage, and you you would think that you might have to pay, you know, if you think of like a, a quintessential uh, example of a French red, you would think maybe, you know, $1,000 a bottle. I mean, if you're going to get into Moutons, you're talking $2,000, $3,000 a bottle. If you get into some of the Bordeaux producers, red burgundy producers, you're talking Domaine Romani Conti, you know, maybe the the fifth digit, you know, maybe maybe 8,000 plus a bottle, 10,000 plus a bottle. Uh, but to get some of the finest wine of Rhone, 
um, you're looking at $500 a bottle. Um, and so that being said, you can get a lot of really, really, really amazing wines from the Rhone for $150 and under. And there's a few that are a little over, um, and there's definitely some that are under. I mean, again, last night I picked up this bottle for $38 a bottle. I don't know if it was meant to be priced that way. Maybe it's something they're trying to move through. Uh, but either way, the wine was um, fantastic. So of all of those producers, Beau Castell and Gui Gal, I think, are the first two that I really heard of, um, Beau Castell producing um, Chateauneuf de Pop. And they all kind of produce different things, but that was the first time I heard of it. And uh, Gui Gal producing Crow's Hermitage, which is the first thing I had from them. Um, again, they produce many things. Uh, Jamais, I've, I've covered before on a podcast, um, the Jamais Blanc which is really fantastic. Vutelegraph is another one that's a little more prominent as far as producers go from the region. Um, but tons of producers, many more than I listed. But these are all kind of like really uh, sought after uh, great standards of Rhone production that I'd highly recommend. Yves Gangloff is another one, but he kind of specializes in Northern Rhone. Um, and obviously Domaine de la Genesse, which is the uh, wine that I've talked about here on the episode. If you can grab the Chateauneuf de Pop, again, I would say it's about 150 plus. If you can grab the Cote Rhone, I had a chance to try it last night and uh, today through a plastic cup, and it's still drinking really well. Um, but yeah, um, it, so then within all of those producers, there's all different styles of wine. And so again, you know, France can get a little confusing when you talk about a region, the Rhone Valley, and then you have things like Cote Rhone. Cote de Roti, Crow's Hermitage, Hermitage, Cornos, Condrieu, Saint Joseph, Chateauneuf de Pop, uh, Gigandas, Baume de Venise. So if you know all of those, uh, give yourself a pat on the back. Um, if you don't, that's okay. That's why you're listening to a podcast and trying to learn a little more. In fact, if you know all of those, I appreciate you listening to my podcast, but maybe you don't really have to. I, I don't know. If you want to listen to it and hear me sound like a fool, then then it's great for entertainment. But if you're coming here expecting to know more about the Rhone, but you're already familiar with all of these wines, I might not get into any super dorky, geeky stuff. Um, so anyways, the uh, Cornos and Condry are two of my favorite. Um, I mentioned Yves Gangloff. He's a really great producer of Cornos and Condry. Uh, but Condry is a Viognier-driven wine from Northern Rhone, and Cornos is a Syrah-driven wine from Northern Rhone. Um, Last night, I had a really hard time deciding on what I wanted to drink, um, which happens uh, more than I'd like to admit. Um, but I was actually throwing around the idea of, of a Cornos or a Condrieu, or I was also throwing around the idea of a Chateauneuf de Pop, but I knew I wanted to drink something from Rhone. And so when I stumbled across a $38 bottle of Rhone wine, I couldn't pass it up. So if you want to get into Rhone wine and, and you go to your local bottle shop or you ask your psalm, at your favorite restaurant, and you say that you want to try something from Rhone, there's some vintages that I, I would like to point out. Um, Rhone has been doing incredibly well uh, with recent vintages um, and has been producing really, really high-quality uh, vintages lately. Um, the weather has been either really good or really horrible, but either way, uh, they've pulled through it, um, hopefully as we all do through uh, the world struggles that we're having right now. Uh, but 2015, 2016, 2017, and 2018 vintages of Rhone wines are all really, really excellent. The 2016, I would say, is 
kind of considered the new benchmark of quality. Um, there was a few before, like 1990 Vintage was considered really fantastic, um, but 16, I would say, is kind of the new uh, level at which everybody's going to be trying to compete at. Uh, 2015 was really great. Spectator, uh, Wine Spectator, rated uh, 2015 at like 97 points, uh, 2016 at 99 points. The 2017 didn't get as high of a rating, but anything that I've had coming from 2018 lately has been really fantastic and really just mind-blowing. Um, I'm not really sure what, what will come of my appreciation of the 2018 because um, it's it's very subjective, as, as I've said on the podcast before. But um, if you have a chance to try anything from 15, 16, 17, or 18 Roan, I'd highly recommend it. And uh, while I'm talking about Roan and I'm talking about dinner that I had last night, I just wanted to give a little shout-out to Bozeman, Montana. So on a little bit of road trip, driving through um, the northern United States and uh, stopped recently in uh, Boise, which was really great. Um, it's my first time being up there, uh, having some wines from their AVAs. Um, AVA being American Viticultural Area. If you haven't heard me use the term before, it's something I'll try to use a lot. I'll try to explain each time just for any new listeners. Um, so there's only three AVAs in, in Idaho, and then I get into Montana with no AVAs. So I'm not expecting um, any crazy um, selection of wine anywhere I go. And uh, I am pleasantly surprised by the beverage industry as a whole in this town. Um, got into town yesterday, uh, was very early for um, the check-in at the hotel, and so just kind of bounced around some different places. I went to Jam for breakfast, which is on Main Street. Uh, really great breakfast, pretty hip scene, uh, good beer selection, um, really, really nice restaurant. Uh, and then uh, bounced around some other areas, uh, had some great beer from, I've been to cheat, hold on, let me look at my list, uh, Union Hall Brewery. Um, went to Lockhorn Cider House, which was fantastic. The ciders there are really incredible. Um, and also next door to Union Hall is their distillery, which I didn't have a chance to stop in. Hopefully I will uh, while I'm up here. Um, and then for dinner, I had the pleasure of going to Plonk. So uh, Plonk, which might sound like the podcast is cutting out, uh, Plonk, P-L-O-N-K, um, is a really great restaurant over on Main Street. It's pretty much across from Jam. So if you find yourself in town and you want to have lunch and dinner, uh, you can kind of stay around Main Street and hit everything right there. Um, so we went in, we had half glasses of wine to start. I buried my head in the list and, and wasn't even really thinking about dinner and just wanted to really see what kind of wine there was. The wine list was really, really fantastic. Um, many selections, many great vintages of different wines, a lot of great stuff. The wine by the glass list is, is substantial, um, but I wanted to see what else they had. And I was pleasantly surprised to see the depth of the list they had. Uh, the French wine selection was incredible. The Italian wine selection was great. They have a lot of wines from uh, Washington, Oregon. Uh, I think there was a few wines from Idaho. I, I wasn't particularly looking, being as I had just been there. Um, but something that I wanted to talk about uh, today is uh, guilt. And uh, guilt obviously can be anything but 
uh, guilt if you are a knowledgeable drinker or if you are um, knowledgeable in, in anything that you do or good at anything that you do. Uh, sometimes it's might be kind of pressured to to buy something expensive or, or drink something better than everyone else or whatever. Maybe you don't experience this or maybe I'm kind of just speaking out of my ass, which is all I really do on the podcast. If you're still listening, um, you know, hopefully you know that by now and you've learned your lesson. Uh, just keep listening. Keep listening to me talk out of my ass. Um, but anyways, so I am a person that when I go to a restaurant, if I want to get a bottle of wine, uh, I feel like I want to spend more than $100 a bottle. And I don't really feel like it's always necessary. There's a lot of really fantastic wines. Um, but I don't always get to go out and eat. And now that I'm unemployed, not unemployed, but furloughed, I haven't lost my job, anybody, sorry. Um, no opening for you. Still my job. You can't have it. Uh, but um, I get to go out to eat a lot more now. But I went to eat at this restaurant, I saw the wine list, and I was just baffled. And there was a lot of really great wines. Uh, there was a Cornas I really wanted to try at about $150 a bottle. Um, there was a uh, a uh, Condru that I wanted to try, $90 a bottle or $80 a bottle. Um, there was a Chateauneuf de Pop that I really wanted to try at about $160 a bottle. And then I saw this wine that I really wanted to try from this producer. And... And producer loyalty, I think, is something that uh, is um, overlooked sometimes. Uh, and I think that I really wanted to try these other wines, and I couldn't really make up my mind. And I didn't really want to spend $150 a bottle. And then I looked at the list, and I saw this wine for $38 a bottle. And I immediately felt guilty for wanting to order something like this. And I don't really know why that happened or where that came from, but maybe it's because, you know, I work in the service industry and if somebody's sitting at my table and they order a $300 bottle of wine, I get excited. It's awesome. I, I have a great feeling about that. Somebody orders a $50 bottle of wine. I'm like, okay, I'm still happy to serve them. I still uh, enjoy giving them a great experience, but it doesn't kind of like uh, jostle the nerves really. And I like to go in and I like to sometimes eat and I'm not somebody that's going to throw around $300 a bottle unless, you know, it's a special occasion. Uh, but I like to order some things that are maybe a little more esoteric or things that are a little more odd um, because I like to try things that I've never had a chance to try. And and that's kind of, I think, something that if you get comfortable with wine and, and you feel confident in your knowledge of wine, maybe it's time to step out of your ordinary stomping grounds and step into a new varietal or a new region. Um, I don't think that you need to spend $200 on your first bottle of Viognier. Uh, I don't think that, you know, that's necessary. Maybe try some entry tier Viognier's first. Um, and if you can't find those, maybe order them online, maybe go to your local bottle shop and try to find them. First Viognier I ever had was a Stag's Leap Viognier, which was solid California Viognier. Um, and now I drink Condrieu, which I can drink not all the time because it's not the cheapest bottle, but uh, when I drink Vignet, I really enjoy that. Um, and also, I have a friend that's producing Vignet from Rogue Valley, Oregon, uh, which is nice also, but very unique in comparison to other Vignets that I've had. Um, the only wine that I've ever had from the Rogue Valley, actually. So uh, hopefully on this road trip, on my way back down south uh, towards San Francisco, the Bay Area, 
I'll stop by Rogue Valley and I'll try some stuff if wineries are open. Everybody's kind of on different pages at the moment. So uh, the guilt that I felt was kind of something that I had to override my brain about. I felt that I had to spend at least $100 on a bottle or I would be kind of a, a waste of space or a waste of time. Um, and normally I eat quick, I drink quick. I'm not somebody that sits at a table for four hours or five hours. Um, and so, you know, I know that the table will turn over and the server will have another chance uh, at a really great table after me. And, you know, any table coming in the door is a good table, especially nowadays. Um, but I, I took a chance. I ordered this $38 bottle of wine and I was very, very pleasantly surprised. Um, and I think that that's something that I'm going to try to do a little bit more. So if I know a producer and I haven't had the wine, I don't want to feel bad for not spending a lot of money. Uh, I don't really see the, the point in that. I don't know. Maybe it's a societal thing. Maybe it's a psalm thing. Maybe it's, I don't know. Nobody's ever told me that I have to spend a lot of money on wine. It's just something that I always felt like I had to do. And the more I learned, the more I felt that I had to spend. Um, so if you're somewhere and you've had a wine from a certain winery and you really enjoyed that winery, um, let's say you had their Pinot Noir. You really like their Pinot Noir, and you're not normally a fan of Merlot, maybe try their Merlot. You might be exposed to something new. You might be able to try a different kind of Merlot that you really enjoy and, and, and kind of uh, broaden the horizon of which you see wine. Um, I think uh, too often, uh, as I've done through my career, and as I continue to do on a day-to-day -day basis, but try not to do, uh, I paint with a pretty broad brush. And I, I think that, you know, maybe I don't like this style of wine or this style of wine or this style of wine. Uh, but at the end of the day, every producer makes things a little bit differently and makes things fairly unique. And, and everybody kind of has their own expression and their own interpretation of a wine. Um, and again, as I've said before, in France, and in, in the old world, I'm sorry, not just France, there's a lot of restrictions on the quality and the taste profile that you're going for. Um, but they're not all the same. If you've tried uh, one Chardonnay against another Chardonnay against another Chardonnay, whether they're all California, whether they're all white Burgundy, none of them are going to taste the same. Um, and if they do taste the same, maybe you've had a little too much to drink. You're only supposed to try the wines, not drink a bottle of each. Uh, but um, if you have a chance to try something new and you really are a fan of a producer, I say step out of your comfort zone. Even if it's not as much as you normally pay, or if it's a little more than you'd usually pay, maybe it's worth a shot. And then you can start really enjoying a producer, and if you feel like it one day, sign up for the wine club, and you can get exposed to all kinds of really funky varietals and blends through that. Um, and, you know, just, again, broaden the horizon. So uh, keep an open mind, keep on sipping, and I'll talk to you soon. Cheers from Bozeman, Montana.